Thank you, Tom. All right. So, looking again at this, the in-between part of this sandwich, uh, we, uh, we read about the, the people uh, rebelling against God, committing these idolatries, even under these judges that God was using to, to, re- to uh, rescue them from their oppressors. So, the question then is, how do we take this, what appears to be a moldy sandwich, and how do we redeem it? How do we enjoy it? How do we consume it with pleasure? One way is to put it in a pretty box, to wrap it in an attractive wrapping container. Uh, That container is the scriptures, the whole Bible, if I can stretch the metaphor just a bit further. When we read the book of Judges in the context of the whole of scripture, we find several satisfying, even delightful messages and truths. And I think it's right to say that the book of Judges cannot, must not be read in isolation from the rest of Scripture. Pastor Ken and I have labored to prevent you from doing that very thing. We have endeavored to highlight and emphasize the way the book of Judges fits in the larger biblical storyline and the variety of ways that it points beyond itself to better and brighter things. Another way the moldy sandwich might be redeemed is by recognizing that there are some wonderful contents to this sandwich. The bright spots in the middle section contained in the stories of the judges themselves could be pulled out and isolated, like saving a good piece of cheese and eating it separately. Largely, however, the book of Judges serves us as Christians as a book of warning. If you eat this sandwich... If you live the way the people of Israel were living in the book, you will die. Today, as we look at Judges chapter 18, we will continue to consider some of the mold on this sandwich. But perhaps it will help us to appreciate the fresh sandwich, the contrast that is described and offered to us in the rest of Scripture to change the metaphor just a bit. So without further ado, let's dive in. Let me summarize briefly Judges 17, where we were last week. We were introduced to Micah and his situation. He had stolen a huge fortune from his own mother. He heard her utter a curse about that. That could have been detrimental to his health. And so he returned the money and confessed to stealing it promptly. She celebrated that act and used some of the money to make an idol out of it. And then Micah, the story zooms in on Micah and his own idolatry that continues after this, but it was already there before. He already owned and ran some kind of idolatrous shrine. He made household gods and an ephod, and he ordained one of his sons to become a priest, which, what were his qualifications? Who knows? He makes him his own personal priest, and we're reminded in verse 6 of chapter 17, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The implication is, if there were a king in Israel, but not just any king, a king who followed the Mosaic law, a king who lived by the kingship rules in Deuteronomy, if that kind of king were in place, this kind of thing would not be happening. And then we're introduced to the replacement for Micah's son. A Levite comes wandering around, away from where he should have been, not doing what he should have been doing, and Micah offers him money to become his new personal priest. And so uh, Micah takes this uh, Levite coming through as a kind of upgrade for his personal priesthood that he's establishing here. And 
the priest agrees, the Levite agrees, and that's where we end the story in chapter 17, and we pick up right there at in the beginning of chapter 18. Micah believes, because he's hired this priest, a Levite, that God will do good to him now, that Yahweh will bless him and prosper him. Let's see how that unfolds. Let's read chapter 18 in its fullness. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Sora and Eshtaol, their brother said to them, "'What do you report?' They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath Jearim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Machane Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath Jearim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. 
he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Bethrahob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the, an- the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So... We focus in on the tribe of Dan in this particular story, and we begin in verses 1 through 6 with a look at Dan's rejected inheritance. Dan's rejected inheritance. We've actually already read about this a couple of times if we're reading through the storyline of the scriptures. We need to go back for just a moment and remind ourselves of what we uh, read earlier in the story, back in the book of Joshua. You remember then Joshua allocated certain territory for each of the 12 tribes, including Dan. So if we go back to Joshua 19 and we read about the territory allocated to Dan specifically, it goes like this, or it begins like this at least, Joshua 19:41, And the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtaol, etc. And then the verses go on to list several other cities in their territory. Notice Zorah and Eshtaol. Those two cities are mentioned in our story here in Judges 18. It's where they start before they leave and go elsewhere. In the book of Judges, even already, we've heard about the problem of the tribe of Dan and their inability to hang on to their inheritance. Back in Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1 verse 34 tells us, "...the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country." For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. And the plain area was where they were supposed to dwell. That was the inheritance that was given to them. Now what you need to see in that kind of picture, when you look at what Joshua says and you see what Judges has to say at the beginning of the book, what you're needing to see and remember is that God promised them to give them this land. He said, this is your territory, this is the land that I'm giving to you, this is where I want you to dwell. And so God promised to give it to them. 
And so when they say no, essentially, they allow the Amorites to push them back out of the territory that God has promised to them, what's going on? They are disbelieving God's promise. They are in unbelief. God promised to give it to them, and they say, well, the Amorites are difficult, let's back out. God promised to give it to them and called them to go in and take it. So God's promise was, I'm going to give it to you, but you have a responsibility here. You actually have to go in, you have to pull swords, you have to have armed conflict with these people, you have to engage with the people of the land, and I will enable you to drive them out. And so when the Danites don't do that, we should see there a lack of faith, an inability to believe and obey God, simply put. And so the Amorites drive them out of their territory and prevent them from living where God intended for them to live. We read the rest of the story in Joshua 19.47. So back already, already in Joshua, we know what's going to happen with the tribe of Dan. Joshua 19.47. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem. And after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. Leshem is Laish that we read about in Judges 18. Same place. So already in Joshua, we know the future about Dan. They're going to migrate, go to this city. They're going to take it as their own. They're going to reject the inheritance that God promised to give them, and they're going to go seek for themselves an inheritance. Think about how odd that idea is just in and of itself. That's the way Judges 18 uh, verse 1 puts it. The tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance. That doesn't make sense. An inheritance is not something that you seek for yourself. An inheritance is something that somebody gives to you. You don't get to choose it. You don't get to say, well, I'd like that as my inheritance. Maybe in some families that does work that way. But generally speaking, an inheritance is something that somebody else, out of the generosity of their heart, bequeaths to you, gives to you solely by grace. And that's certainly the picture when we're thinking about God and his people here. Back in Joshua again, Joshua 19.48 gives the end of the matter. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans. These cities with their villages. Which cities? Not Leshem, not Laish, the cities that were just listed in verses 41 through 46. And so they have rejected their inheritance. And they've gone out and said, I'm going to go pick the inheritance that I want. And they move and migrate to find it. If you'll put that map up on the screen, I want to just show you a little bit about the geography here that's significant. Um, looks like some of it's going to be covered at the top, but that's okay. We'll make do. So the, the territory of Dan is down here, right? That orangish place right there. That is the territory that Joshua allocated to them. Right there at the very bottom edge here is Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, they're going to migrate all the way north. Oh, it's right there. It's underneath the red curtain there. That says Dan right there. So they're going to go all the way from down here, Zora and Eshtaol, and travel all the way up there. Now, I want to point one more thing out on this map before we move on. Something that you probably can't see from where you're sitting, but right here is Shiloh, which is mentioned at the end of the story there in the territory of Ephraim. Now, I mentioned that to you now Because Shiloh, we're told at the end of the story, is where the house of God is. 
Now, at this time, that's not the temple, right? There's a tabernacle, and it's where the Ark of the Covenant stays. It's where the high priest, the legitimate high priest, is staying, and the Ark of God is staying. So what I want you to see is that these Danites could have gone right through Shiloh, all the way up here on their way out. They could have stopped in Shiloh to inquire of the Lord. They could have stopped at the legitimate priest and asked him to inquire of Yahweh for them. But they choose to stop at Micah's house where there's a false priest and false gods to consult. And so the tribe of Dan is not looking too good here as they travel and migrate and choose this land up here. Now, if you'll move on to that second map, there's something else I want you to see. Oh, you can see it a little bit better there. Good. So Dan is over here again originally. And Laish is right here. Laish, or what becomes Dan. Now notice the little green circle there. So they basic, God promised to give them this much land, all of that, and they went up here and settled for this little bitty, itty bitty living space. (laughs) They are settling very much for an inferior inheritance. And when you abandon what God promises you and you go look for things that you want for yourself, it's always that way. This little map has a message. When we settle, for things that we want to choose for ourselves rather than what God wants to give us, it's always worse. No matter how we estimate things, it's always worse. And that's exactly what we see the people of Dan here doing. They're abandoning, rejecting the inheritance that God has offered to them. Now, the way that they do this in verses 1 through 6, it sounds like they're going through the same steps that the people of Israel did under Joshua when they went to spy out the land and go take it by conquest. Everything sounds like they're doing everything in order, but there are some significant irregularities here. Um, They go and they send these spies out to go explore the land, and they stop on the way to the house of Micah and lodge there. Now, that language is almost just like what we see in Joshua chapter 2 when Joshua sends spies into the land of Canaan and they stop at the house of a prostitute and lodge there. Now, we remember how that story went. It worked out quite well, at least for the inhabitants there. Her name was Rahab, if you remember. But here, the stop takes a different, more sour turn at, this, uh, at the house of Micah. So they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Apparently this wandering Levite that we looked at last week had spent some time in Dan and some of the people, some of these five spies knew him and they recognized his voice and they decided to check out why he was here of all places. And he tells them how Micah had hired him and he's become his personal priest. And then they take the opportunity to say in verse 5, inquire of God, please. Now that's an odd way of putting it. If we were to go back and look at other times or ahead and look at other times that people inquire of the God of Israel, it's almost always inquire of Yahweh. His personal name is used. Whereas here, inquire of God. Whatever God you happen to be connected to, Micah, and, or the Levite at least. And so he's going. they're asking him, would you... Ask God if our journey is going to be successful. So they're asking a yes or no question, which is normal. But then verse 6 doesn't tell us that the priest does anything other than answer them. And that's an irregularity as well. We don't see anything saying the Lord answered and told them what was going on. We don't see the, pre, the, the Levite here doing anything. Did he actually inquire of God? Did he actually go through any kind of ritual motions? He seems to just answer them on his own. 
And so what does he tell them? Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. So the priest uses the name Yahweh here, but notice that his, his answer is a little bit ambiguous. It's not in and of itself a positive response. Go in peace kind of implies that it's going to go well for you, but the fact that their journey is under the eye of the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing. God often sets his eyes upon people to bring judgment upon them. And what we're going to see and what I think the narrator wants us to see as he tells the story this way is to recognize that in their eyes, remember that phrase, in their eyes, their journey is very much going to be successful. They're going to take this territory, they're going to settle down and all is going to be quote unquote well. But the narrator wants us to see that everything that is unfolding is not good. It is not going to go well for Dan. The destiny of Dan starts right here when they abandon Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they take on these false gods that the people of Dan will worship until the end of the people of Dan. This is a problem that starts and ends the people of Israel. It's going to be prevalent and pervasive, and it's going to be the reason that they're destroyed at the end. And so it's the, it's the beginning of the end right here for the people of the north that these Danites, the people of Dan, become. So they get the blessing from the priest and they think all is well. So they move on in verses 7 through 12 and then they choose, Dan chooses, a false inheritance. So again, they've rejected the inheritance God promised to them and they're going to go north and they find this city, Laish or Leshem as Joshua called it. The way the town is described, the narrator wants us to give some sympathy to these people. They're described in such a way that, uh, let's see, in verse 7, they lived in security, so they're rather peaceful. They're kind of, uh, there's nothing, they're quiet and unsuspecting. They're not concerned that anyone is going to invade them. They're not concerned that they're going to be in any kind of danger. And then at the end of verse 7, they had no dealings with anyone. They're isolated. They've isolated themselves. They think they're secure. They think they're okay. This is an interesting description of a city in Canaan. It's not a fortified city. There's no military presence there to fight back. They're vulnerable. And the people of Dan are going to see that as an opportunity to take advantage of. So the people of Dan are not looking very good here as they spy out that city and say, no defenses, nobody's likely to come and help them to save them. Let's take them. That's very ugly. If you think back to the way that, the, that God had commanded the people of Israel to come into the land of Canaan and to take it, they did command them to go into the cities and devote them to destruction. But it also said, God also told them, when you go into a city, offer terms of peace to it. Most of the time they're not going to take that opportunity. And the book of Joshua says that they never do, essentially. And so, but these cities that they're supposed to be going into are fortified cities, military encampments that have walls and garrisons of soldiers. The Israelites are not being instructed to go in and take advantage of the vulnerable. And that's exactly what the people of Dan here are doing. They are going in to find a vulnerable town that is weak and helpless, and they're going to pounce on it like a vicious, vicious animal. 
And so they find the city that way. They go all the way back down south to Zorah and Eshtaol and tell everybody else, this is what we found. It's a great spot. Let's go take it. And so they arm themselves, 600 men of the tribe of Dan, a little military contingent to go and take the city. Verses 13 to 20 then give us an interesting story where everybody interacts with Micah and his priests. We read about God napping, like kidnapping, but God napping and priest bribing. I borrowed the term God napping from a a commentator named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, if you're wondering. But this is very much a picture of them stealing gods, kidnapping gods for themselves here. The spies take this little military contingent and they go back the same way they went before. They take the army through and they stop at Micah's house again. And then they tell their armed compatriots, Do you know that there is in this place, in this compound, household gods and an ephod and a carved image and a metal image? And then at the end of verse 14, they say, The five men tell the army, Now therefore consider what you will do. Now, we stopped right there and asked, what should they have done? According to the Mosaic Law, they should have stoned Micah and the Levite. That's what they should have done according to the Mosaic Law. Micah and his priests are worshiping false gods. They've got all the idolatrous paraphernalia that goes along with idolatrous worship, and they should be stoned and executed for their idolatry. That's not what's going to happen. Not at all. The very opposite thing. They're going to steal from Micah. They're going to kidnap, Godnap, these idols. Now this is a fitting, and in one sense it's a fitting and ironic judgment of Micah, because if you remember from chapter 17, Micah, we were introduced to him as a thief initially. He stole from his own mother. And so now the punishment fits the crime. He is being robbed of all that is most precious to him, as we'll find out in the next uh, little paragraph. But they go in, they take all of the idolatrous paraphernalia. The priest at first seems to object. What are you doing? He asks them in verse 18. And then they tell him to shut up. And then they offer him an offer he cannot refuse. They say, why don't you come with us and you can be our priest. A priest not just to a family in Israel, but to a whole tribe. And implied in that is that they're going to offer him a sum of money to take care of his needs. And so we already know that this Levite's character is blemished and greedy. And so he obviously, he's glad, the text tells us. His heart was glad, verse 20, so that he gladly took the new post and went along. But then the narrator tells us something else. Verse 20 says, And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So suddenly the Levite himself is implicated as guilty of robbing, stealing from Micah. So you've got treachery against his former boss and also just the, the priest, the priest handling all of this idolatrous paraphernalia. Now presumably he was doing that before anyway, but now he takes it for himself and goes along with these other people, with the tribe of Dan. He is complicit in all that they have done. And so then they get on the road, verses 21 to 26. A man must protect his gods. It's a line borrowed from Warren Wearsby. But a man must protect his gods. That's what we see happening here. Micah finds out that his gods are gone and he freaks out. 
And not just him, he gets his neighbors involved. He calls out all of his neighbors and he says, They've stolen my gods! And they start chasing after the tribe of Dan. They're freaking out about this, probably because the whole community was involved in Micah's worship. This wasn't just private idolatry for Micah. If you remember back in earlier in Judges, Judges chapter 6, Gideon's father, Joash, had an altar to Baal. But it wasn't just his private family idol. It was the whole community that would come and engage in idolatrous worship there at Joash's house. That seems to be this case here as well with Micah and his family. But he very much takes personal ownership in all of this. Verse 24, his response when they challenge him, he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? They've taken his idols that he made with his own hands and his own money. Take his priest that he hired with his money. And he thinks he's got nothing left to live for. He's got nothing left. And there's a little message here for all of us. Whenever we put our devotion, whenever we turn our worship toward things other than Jesus, it will always fail us, it will always disappoint us, and it will leave us thinking that we have nothing left to live for. That's the way they work. And we're not talking about building silver idols for ourselves. That doesn't happen very often in this culture. But think about the, think about the things in your own life, even as a Christian, that you might be tempted to say, if I lost blank, I would be so devastated that I would feel like I had nothing left to live for. And this is not necessarily just bad things. We can often fill in that blank with good things. Think about, as painful as it might be to think about, think about the possibility of losing your spouse or a child or a parent or your career or your bank account or your investments. If your reaction to that thought is I'd have nothing left if those things were taken from me. You might, you might be worshiping those things. You might be elevating their importance above God. Our attitude as Christians should rather be the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, 25 Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. That should be our heartfelt reality day by day. So that when we lose the things of this world, and we will. We will lose family. We will lose income. We will lose our reputations. When those things are threatened... We don't lose everything. In the grand scheme of things, we lose nothing. Because we have what matters most and what lasts forever. And so it is that we turn our attention to worship the true God in Jesus. Micah's problem and Micah's uh, situation here is that he had made gods for himself. 
put all of his focus, all of his devotion, all of his attention on those things. And so when they were taken from him so easily, so easily gone, he is utterly broken, utterly devastating. I've got nothing left. Well, he's in a bad situation indeed if that's how he thinks because there's nothing he can do about it. The tribe of Dan and their armed force is significantly stronger than anything he can gather out of his little neighborhood. And so Micah is done. We hear nothing else from him ever again. This is the end of Micah's story. We don't know what happened uh, after this. He goes home devastated and without his precious possessions. So finally, verses 27 to 31, we learn about the rest of the story of this migration of Dan. They go north and they find themselves a new place. To borrow a phrase from Pastor Ken again from last week, they find the tribe of Dan finds itself a false place, a false priest, and false gods to worship. The problem of Micah and his little family is the problem of the whole tribe of Dan. They have the same guilt, the same idolatry, the same problem that Micah and his family had. And what we have to remember at this point is that these stories at the end of the book of Judges are happening, unfolding early in the history of the period of Judges. And I'm convinced they're meant to be representative. You see, this is not just an isolated case. Yes, the tribe of Dan is the only tribe that abandoned their inheritance and went to go fetch something for themselves. But the idolatry problem was characteristic of the whole people. This kind of idolatry was going on everywhere. And we've seen evidence of that throughout the story of the judges. But this kind of idolatry, this kind of ridiculous abandonment of God and His promises is prevalent across God's people during this period. And so the tribe goes north. They find the city just as it had been described, but then the narrator adds a few pieces so that we readers will sympathize with the people of Laish. Now, if we looked at that map, the, the, the city of Laish was apparently within the territory of one of the tribes of Israel up north, but it's likely that the people of Israel didn't actually take that city. And so the inhabitants of the city are most likely Canaanites, most likely pagans, and the narrator wants us to sympathize with them. Because the people of Israel, the tribe of Dan, is acting uncharacteristically wicked, or perhaps characteristically wicked for this period of history for them. They're not acting like Israel, they're acting like Canaanites. They're treating the city, of this, city this town, Laish, like Canaanites would treat their own people. And so the narrator says in verse 28, there was no deliverer. And we all ought to shed a tear. There was no deliverer. And this word deliverer is the word that's been used several times in the book of Judges to refer to God in his own relationship with his people. He is the one who comes to deliver his people. And he used and raised up human deliverers, the judges. But here, there's no one to save these people. They had no dealings with anyone. They were isolated. There was no one who would come to help them. And so the, the, the tribe of Dan takes the city, slaughters the people, burns it to the ground, and over time rebuilds it and settles in it. And they named the city Dan, after their ancestor Dan, the son of Israel. But then the narrator again wants to draw sympathy from us, the readers, at the end of verse 29. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. 
were to never forget that the name of that city was Laish at first. And it should have remained that way, given the way the people of Dan treated them. And then verses 30 and 31 close with the picture of their idolatry and a shocking, shocking revelation. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. This is the young Levite that we've been reading about since chapter 17. He is the grandson of the great Moses. Now, I have to comment. I have to take a moment, take a little detour off the side of the road a little bit because I know some of, the, some of you are reading in your English Bible right now from the King James Version, the New King James Version, or the New American Standard, and it says the son of Manasseh instead of Moses. And you're probably wondering what in the world are you talking about. So let me just say a brief and oversimplistic word about that. The Hebrew text clearly says Moses here. Okay, so the truth of the... Here's bottom line. The, the fact of the matter is, the inspired word of God says that this young man was the grandson of Moses. The King James Version, the New King James Version, and the New American Standard Bible are following a tradition. Okay? Tradition plays a role in Bible translation. Always does. And it's not a bad thing, necessarily. Here's what happened. Scribes, Jewish scribes, very early on, took this text as they were copying it and passing it on, and they were shocked that the grandson of Moses could be implicated in this kind of idolatry. And so what they did is they put the little letter in, the Hebrew equivalent of a little letter in, above the word Moses, right in the middle, so that other readers coming along later would pull that in down into the middle of Moses' name. And it's hard to see in English, but in Hebrew, Moses and Manasseh are one letter apart. That little in makes the difference. And so from that time until this time, the tradition has been followed that this was the grandson or descendant of a man named Manasseh. Now, that could be the tribe of Manasseh that we know about from earlier days, or the rabbi, the scribe who did this, was probably wanting to connect him to the Manasseh that comes later, that's entirely associated with wickedness. And so that would then mean this is a figurative, figurative connection to Manasseh and not any kind of descent or genealogy. Sorry for that discrepancy. I, I didn't do it. <laughs> but the evidence is very clear that the text, the inspired word of God, is that this is the grandson of Moses. And we should be shocked by that. We should be grieved by that. And so what the text is telling us here is that from this day until the captivity, and that's probably talking about the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel, which Dan is now a part of, They wouldn't have been if they hadn't migrated, but now they're the northernmost part of the northern kingdom when it splits. So we're talking about 600-ish years that the line of Moses, the priests descended from Moses, serve as a rival priesthood to the true priests descended from his brother Aaron. 
It creates another layer of the split among the people of Israel, and it starts even earlier. So there's not just this split between north and south. There's this split between the line of Moses and the line of Aaron in the priesthood itself. And the other implication that's there that should just grieve us is that all through that period, from this day until 734 B.C., when the Assyrians first march into Dan and destroy this whole area, there was idolatrous worship going on. That means through the time of David, through the time of Solomon, this idolatrous line of priests were committing idolatry among the people of Israel. It's never paradise in this world. Never. There's not a period, a golden age, where all is well among the people of God. It won't be until the king returns. So, as we close out this section and think about this story more largely, the message for us is very clear. Don't settle for a false inheritance, Christian. Don't settle for a false inheritance. Many people who claim to follow Jesus are content to seek out a material inheritance in this life. They spend their time, their energies, and their resources collecting more stuff. Others who claim to follow Jesus, think they must earn their inheritance. If I do more, I'll get more, is their unstated motto. An inheritance is something you cannot earn. An inheritance is something given as a gift to an heir. And so the question this morning is, are you an heir? How do you know if you're an heir? How do you know if you're an heir? And if you're not an heir, how do you become an heir? Well, you've got to be a child. You've got to be a child of someone who has resources that they want to give you in the future. So whose child do you need to be? What are we talking about? You have to be a child of God. You have to be a child of God. But isn't that everybody? No. Absolutely not. You must be adopted as a son, into the family of God. Only one human being since Adam has been truly, naturally, God's son. His name is Jesus. For every other person on the face of the planet, God must bring us into this family. He must adopt us. So how does that happen? We must trust the true son. We must recognize Jesus as the true Son of God and believe that He lived out perfectly what being a Son of God means. And we must believe that He chose to die, chose to experience death on a cross, chose to experience separation from His holy, heavenly Father in order to bring us into that family. You can't earn a spot in the family. You can't impress God with your deeds or with your stuff so that He would invite you into His house. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, God gave the right to become children of God. You don't have the right to be a child of God naturally. Nobody comes into this world with the right to be a child of God. It must be given to you as a gift. 
God gives the right to be a child of God to whom? Verse 13. To those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You've got to be born of God. And just like you were born of your parents, you didn't get a say in the matter. You didn't choose them, and you didn't choose how it happened or when it happened. You just came. You're here. But you want to know something amazing? Jesus, the true Son of God, the true heir of God, didn't stay dead. A death is always required for an inheritance to be passed on, right? Ironically, Jesus' own death is what allowed him to receive and enjoy his own inheritance. God raised him from the dead so that he he could enjoy his inheritance. And what was that inheritance? What is the inheritance of the true Son of God? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that God appointed his Son to be heir of all things. Everything. All things. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. Now, he's the rightful owner of everything because he was involved in creating everything. But he's doubly the rightful owner of everything because God promised it to him as an inheritance. But here's the mind-blowing thing. The inheritance is actually better than the creation. I'll come back to that and show you that in just a second. But first, consider... I want to entice you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to entice you by showing you what is promised to the one who believes in Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says that those whom God has adopted, those who have become God's children by trusting Jesus, have become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ you got to see it. you got to look at it closely. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Notice two quick things. Fellow heirs with Christ means that His inheritance is our inheritance. The same inheritance as Christ. What's the inheritance of Christians? The same inheritance of Christ, as Christ. What is Jesus to inherit? Everything. All things. What is the Christian to inherit? Everything. All things. Secondly, though, you've got to see that there's a condition attached. Provided we suffer with Him. A part of trusting Jesus is taking up your cross. Trusting Jesus means abandoning our selfish desires and our pursuit of a false inheritance in this world. But let me close by motivating you that it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it to suffer the loss of everything in this life if that is what it takes to receive and enjoy the inheritance that's been promised to followers of Jesus. Let me go quickly through some of the things some of the ways that the Bible talks about our inheritance. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's one of the Beatitudes that begins Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And I am fully persuaded that everything in that great sermon is directed squarely to disciples of Jesus. That is, 
directed to you and me as we follow Jesus. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to Christians today. And I believe that the Beatitudes specifically describe the character of followers of Jesus. So that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 5, that followers of Jesus will pursue meekness now, during this life, and they will inherit the earth in the future. The earth, all of it. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Suffer the loss of all things now for the sake of Jesus. And he does promise a one hundredfold blessing in this life. Mark's account of this saying makes that much clearer. But the true reward of the inheritance is the inheritance of eternal life in the future. Speaking of reward, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 in the New American Standard Bible says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Reward and inheritance are difficult to equate. We tend to think of a reward as something that you earn, and an inheritance is something that is given freely to us by grace. But biblically, even rewards are divvied out by grace. And here, Paul clearly connects reward and inheritance unbreakably. Two other texts finally, and then we'll close. As Jesus describes Judgment Day from Matthew 25 in a parable depicting the separation of sheep from goats, where the sheep were followers of Jesus during their lives, Matthew 25, 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom. It's by inheritance that we receive the kingdom. It is by inheritance that we receive our places of reigning with Jesus forever. And it's to this last aspect of our inheritance that I want to draw our final attention. Revelation chapter 21, verse 7 in the NIV says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. Well, that begs the question, all what? All that he just described in verses 1 through 6. So let me read those words in closing. If this is your inheritance, Christian, what we're about to read from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, if this is your inheritance, why would you ever seek for something else? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That is the inheritance that is offered to all who will come. All who will drink. You don't have to pay a penny. You don't have to do anything. Open your mouth and receive the gift. That is all. Trust in Jesus. This is the inheritance that He has purchased and stored up for all who will trust Him. Give yourself to Him. No matter what it costs, it's totally worth it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for laying up for us such an inheritance We've read words that attempt to scratch the surface of describing its wonder and its beauty. But I feel that even the inspired authors can't do it justice. And so we all confess our longing for the day when we will see it with our own eyes. Resurrected eyes. The only kind of eyes that can truly appreciate it and enjoy it. Would you keep us faithful till then? We call out with hope, with deep hope and deep longing. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Father, send your Son to wrap up this painful history that that has plagued us all. The brokenness of our lives, the brokenness of this world. We grieve and we mourn, but not as those who are without hope. We look to the coming of our Savior. We look to the full measure of our salvation, the inheritance that has been promised to us. And we beg you, O Lord, preserve us till that day. Keep us faithful. Keep us trusting. Keep us hoping in the one who can save us from all that ails us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.